Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning, uh, and welcome to Trinity. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here today, and this morning it's going to be my privilege to open God's Word and lead us in our study of it. It's also going to be my goal to do so without devolving into a coughing fit at some point over the course of the morning. I'm thinking I have a better chance of doing the former than I do of the latter, so here we go. We'll see what happens, but we're going to be looking this morning at the Gospel of Matthew. So here at Trinity, uh, we love the Bible. We believe the Bible is how God speaks to us. It's how he communicates who he is, who we are, and how we should respond to him. And so we make it a habit Sunday by Sunday of studying it together, of opening it up. And most often, we just work through a book of the Bible paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. We want to understand it in its context, and then we want to apply it, once we understand it, to everyday life. And right now, that has us on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is... Uh, a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're looking at who Jesus is in his own words, going straight to the source, wanting to understand what it was he came to accomplish and what he means for us today, 2,000 years later. So if you have a copy of the Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat rack in front of you. Uh, And then if you would like a listening guide, a little piece of paper, it's got the text in it. It's got some space to take notes. You can just slip your hand up and Dalen will come down from the back and make sure you get one of those if you would like it. Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. And while you turn there, to kind of set the table this morning, I want to talk to us about skepticism going to talk about skepticism. We live in a culture that highly values skepticism and careful inquiry. And oftentimes that's a good thing, right? We can look around and see all sorts of things that we have in our world today because of skepticism and careful inquiry. Scientists in many different fields have made astonishing discoveries because they weren't willing to accept the status quo, because they asked questions, because they they pushed deeper. They asked what was going on underneath what was clearly and immediately visible to them. So skepticism can be a very healthy thing in life. But sometimes skepticism reaches a point where it ceases to be helpful. Sometimes skepticism reaches a point where it ceases to be helpful and it can actually become laughable or even dangerous. So one of my favorite illustrations of this reality comes from one of my favorite TV shows, the classic TV show, The X-Files. I don't know if we have any X-Files fans here this morning, um, but a great show, good sci-fi, mystery every week. Uh, but it is a great illustration of, of some important truths about the limits of skepticism. So The X-Files is about two FBI agents, Agent Mulder and Agent Scully, and they investigate paranormal cases. And they're very different from one another. So Agent Mulder is the prototypical believer, right? He believes his sister was abducted by aliens at a young age, so he's out there looking for the truth. The truth is out there. That's the tagline of the show. And he always is out there trying to uncover these great mysteries and believes that there are amazing, extraordinary things lying under the surface of our world. Scully is the skeptic. She's a medical doctor, and she actually gets assigned to Mulder's team by her superiors to basically check out the work this guy is doing and let us know how crazy he is. So she's the empirical scientist. She's always questioning, always doubting, always wanting to be cautious. Uh, And it forms a great character dynamic for a great TV show, right? you got the believer, you got the skeptic, and their methods and their means clash over the course of the show. Makes for really good TV, to a point. Be 
because the X-Files went, I want to say, nine or ten seasons. Once you get through, like, season four, season five, Scully's skepticism starts to wear a little bit thin. Right? L- let me illustrate here. So there's one episode in season five where they're investigating a computer program that seems to have gone rogue and is now, like, actively trying to kill people. And so they're, they're talking to this woman who they think might be a target, and she says that the program has taken control of this weapon satellite in space and is getting ready to fire on them. And so Mulder is like, all right, we got to get out of here right now before we get blown up. And Scully is like, really? Like a satellite from space is being told by a computer to kill people? Like that seems a little bit ridiculous. And taken in isolation, that skepticism seems plausible, right? Like if I told you this morning, my computer is going crazy and it just told a satellite from space to fire on the chapel and kill us all. Let's get out of here. You would look at me like I've lost my mind and that would probably be appropriate. But consider where we've been in the course of the show at this point when Scully is this skeptical. In the first five seasons of the show, Scully has, among other things, been abducted by aliens, encountered a psychic serial killer, investigated a man who can set people on fire with his brain, and faced off against another murderous computer program. After all that, she's told the satellite's going to fire down from space and kill us all right now. Like, that's the bridge too far? Really? I think we've evolved past a point where things are ridiculous now. If Mulder says this is going to happen, I'm probably going to say, okay, let's get out of here before we get blown up. Skepticism is helpful, but there comes a point, once you've seen so much, skepticism actually becomes ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense anymore. The people who encounter Jesus in the passage we're going to look at today are in much the same position as Scully season five of the X-Files. They are going to demand a sign from him. They're going to say, you got to show us something to validate who you are before we'll follow you. But they've already seen a lot. They've seen a lot. They've dismissed it. They've discounted it. And Jesus says, there's going to be another sign yet to come that's bigger than anything that you've seen so far. And guess what? You're not ready to believe that either. That same attitude is alive and well in our culture today. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this episode from Jesus's life. We're going to consider the sign that Jesus said he came to provide and the things that he did to show people that he's altogether different than anyone else that they had encountered. And we're going to have some hard questions to ask ourselves. Are we believing in, are we beholding Jesus in a way that reflects reality, the reality of who he is, of what he said, of what he came to accomplish? Or are we more like Scully in season five, where we've seen everything crazy under the sun, but we still are sitting here saying, you got to show me more. All the while, the watching world says, are you listening to yourself? So that's, that's the table set for what we're going to look at. Let's read Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42, and then we'll dive in and look at it together. Starting in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, being Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That's our text. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray briefly and then we'll study this together, see what it has to say to us. Our God, our good and gracious Father, as we come to you wanting to hear from you, wanting to learn from you, we ask in this moment that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us by the power of your spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so we're jumping here in the middle of the story as Jesus is interacting with these Pharisees and scribes in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, answered him. So we're jumping in midstream here. We're jumping in. We need to kind of set the context. Remember what it is that's going on. Right now we see Jesus continuing a back and forth exchange with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So these were the, the bright shining stars of religion and spirituality of Jesus' day. They were the ones who were teachers, who were well educated, who knew the Bible inside and out. And that frequently, they ended up cra- uh, clashing with Jesus, right? They had their expectations. Jesus wasn't marching to their expectations and so it brought with it conflict. And we've been watching one of those conflicts unfold for the better part of chapter 12. And and so this back and forth is going on. And Jesus has been speaking sharply to these guys. And he's been saying, you're missing the point. You're looking at all these little tiny details, wanting to make sure that the people are following every last detail of the law. While at the same time, you're missing the entire point of the law. You're missing the entire heart of it. The reason that God told you to follow these laws was for good and for grace, not to tear people down and put burdens on their back. And so Jesus and the Pharisees are clashing, and he's speaking sharply to them like he normally does. He's speaking like somebody with authority, right? He's speaking like somebody who says what he means and has real authority behind it, and they weren't used to that because in that culture, they were the ones who thought they had authority, but they spoke in a guarded way. They, they weren't bold like Jesus is. They didn't come out and speak for God like Jesus is doing here. And so as they become the targets of his sharp words, they decide to go on the defensive here. And they ask him to see a sign in verse 38. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They ask for a sign that would demonstrate his divine authority. So Jesus is acting like somebody who has authority beyond what a normal human being would have. He's acting like he's got some divine authority. And so they say, put up or shut up. We want to see something from you that justifies the way that you're speaking to us. Now, this would be a healthy, reasonable request, right? If somebody is claiming to speak with divine authority, we should expect them to be able to give us something to back that up, right? The world and the world's history is full of people claiming divine authority. If I got here this morning and said, I heard a secret message from God, you should listen to me because you should listen very carefully for what that because is, right? That's going to decide, do I need to listen to this person or is he crazy? He's probably crazy. They're asking Jesus for a sign. So this would be a healthy and reasonable request if they already hadn't seen him do about a thousand signs already right? This is chapter 12. We're jumping in midstream here. This is Scully season five, not Scully episode one. They've seen a lot of stuff already. They've seen a lot of stuff that demonstrates Jesus's power, his authority, and they have tossed it out the door. 
They've ignored it. They've tried to attribute it to other things. They've kind of stuck their head in, their sand, in the sand. They've gotten to a point where their skepticism doesn't line up anymore. And so Jesus answers them sharply in verse 39. He answers them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So they say, show us a sign. Jesus says, sorry, not going to get one. Actually, you're going to get one, but the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. So that makes us ask the question, what's the sign of the prophet Jonah? Right? we got to ask, who is Jonah? Now, in our scripture reading today, Pastor Dave read from the book of Jonah, a little excerpt from chapter 3. Now, Jonah, the name is, is familiar to most of us, especially if we grew up in church as little kids, and you instantly think when you hear Jonah, whale, right? He's the whale guy. He's the guy that got eaten by the giant fish. And that's really the extent of what we know about Jonah most of the time. But we, if we look back at the Old Testament story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. And not a particularly good prophet. In fact, in the grand scheme of Old Testament prophets, Jonah might be the worst prophet on the planet. Like, this is not a great stand-up example of what you should be like as a prophet. See, Jonah was sent by God to go to a city called Nineveh and to give them a message of judgment and condemnation, that God has seen their violence that this city has committed, and he's bringing judgment on it. And Jonah is kind of excited at this prospect of judgment on Assyria, Nineveh, they're Israel's enemy. So he's like, hey, this is, I get to go tell the bad guys, they're going down. But Jonah knows something about God. Jonah knows God is merciful and that God very often gives mercy when people repent and turn to him. And so Jonah knows, I'm going to go, I'm going to preach, and they might repent, and then God's not going to destroy them, and I want to see them get destroyed. So Jonah says, I'm not going. He hops on a boat. He goes the other direction across the Mediterranean Sea. God says, not so fast. He sends a storm. Storm comes up. Superstitious sailors that Jonah's traveling with uh, understand the reason that this storm is coming and we're all going to die is because of this guy. Jonah's like, yep, it's me. I'm running away from God. They're like, great, Jonah. You're going to get us all killed because of this. So he says, throw me in the sea and then you'll all be safe. And they throw him in the sea and the storm, the storm stops. Jonah would drown in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, story over, but God sends a giant fish. We don't know if it's a whale, it just says a big fish. God sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah so he doesn't drown, and Jonah ends up sitting in the belly of this great fish, having the time of his life, right? And he's sitting there, and in despair, he cries out to God and says, God, I'm sorry, you're right. I will proclaim your goodness if you will save me from this fish. And so God, after three days, has the fish vomit Jonah up on the beach. And Jonah says, all right, I guess I'm going to Nineveh now. And he goes to Nineveh, and we get to chapter 3, and that's where Jonah proclaims the message. And he says, hey, you all have committed violence. God's not happy. You, you need to, to repent, and destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. God's going to destroy this city. And what happens to the people of Nineveh? They actually believe him, right? They believe him. They repent, and God relents from the judgment that he said he's going to bring. And Jonah gets really bent out of shape on it. And in chapter 4, he basically sets up bleachers to watch the city burn, and the city doesn't burn, and he whines about the fact that his shade tree dies. Like, and that's the end of the book. It's really a strange ending. Um, we leave that part out in the kid's story most of the time, but, but that, that's the story of Jonah. That's who it is. So why does Jesus say the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, thankfully, he explains it to us right in verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign you're going to get. In essence, what Jesus is saying to them is, you want a sign? I am the sign. I am the sign. The sign is going to be that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then emerged from the fish to proclaim this message of faith and repentance, so Jesus is going to be in the heart of the earth. He's going to be dead and buried for three days and then emerge from death and proclaim a message of faith and repentance. I am going to be the sign. And so this is what he says they're going to get. Remember, they've had signs. Right? It, 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 as we read this in isolation, it can say, man, Jesus is being really harsh and he's not giving these guys anything and he keeps just busting their chops all the time. But they've seen so much. Literally, in the very verses that precede this, they just got a sign, right? They saw Jesus cast a demon out of somebody. And what did they say to that? They're like, well, you did that by demonic powers. That's not real. Like, you just saw a sign, and now you're whining about how you don't get a sign. So Jesus says, you don't get a sign. I am the sign. I am going to demonstrate my authority by dying and by rising from the dead. The point that, that Jesus is getting across to them here is nothing is going to be good enough for you, right? Nothing is going to be good enough. They've just thrown away the sign of him casting a demon out of somebody. And if that's not good enough, let's think about the other stuff that they've seen just in Matthew's gospel so far. If that's not good enough, and all the healings are not good enough, and the calming of a storm isn't good enough, and the raising of a little girl from the dead isn't good enough, then what exactly would be good enough? What are you waiting for, people? The skepticism of the Pharisees has jumped the shark. It doesn't make sense anymore at this point. And what Jesus is saying them, to them is, guess what? Nothing is going to be good enough for you. Because he says the sign you're going to get is me being raised from the dead. But Jesus understands and later on in his ministry, he'll say so explicitly, even that won't be good enough for you. Even that you'll find a way to put out of mind. Luke 16, 31, as Jesus is telling another story, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't hear the testimony they've received so far about me, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus says, your skepticism has gone so far that you're not even seeing clearly in front of your eyes. And it doesn't matter what I do, you won't see it. He's warning them that they've completely missed the boat. They have taken this skepticism and it's gone to a very unhealthy place. What it's actually become is a form of self-worship. And the Pharisees wouldn't say that, right? They'd say, well, we worship God, right? We, we worship God. Jesus says, no, you, you worship yourself. Because I've given you every sign you could ask for. I'm going to give you the sign to end all signs in myself. And you say, no, we want you to do what we want you to do, right? The measure by which they're measuring Jesus is, does he tick the boxes that they have decided he ticks? They're only going to trust him. They're only going to trust God insofar as God meets their standards. And so if everything about what they're doing is all about their own standards and expectations, and they want God to submit himself to that, then who are they really worshiping? Who's really their God? It's them. So Jesus tells them, I am the sign. He says they've had countless signs, and what was going to come, this big sign is going to bring everything together. It's going to help us to see clearly that he is different, he is divine, he is unlike anything and anyone else in human history. 
And their unbelief, their refusal to believe is not rooted in a lack of evidence. That's what Jesus is exposing here. It's not because of lack of signs. It's not because of lack of evidence. It's a willful rejection of his authority. They won't believe because they won't believe. Because they have decided in their will, I am not listening to this guy. I'm not submitting to what he has to say from God. All along the way so far, keep in mind, they haven't rejected his, or they haven't disbelieved his actions, right? Nobody's denied that Jesus has done the amazing things that he's done. It's always they reject his authority, right? They don't say, you really didn't cast a demon out of a guy. You say, well, you did that through demonic power, right? It's always undercutting the authority, never denying what they've actually seen with their eyes, what they can't deny. So that's the point that Jesus makes. He confronts them with the fact that their skepticism has moved from a place where it's not healthy. In fact, it's ridiculous and it's destroying them. And he brings that home for us in verse 41, where the text shifts from simply being challenging to skepticism, and it actually takes a turn towards being downright uncomfortable. It brings some uncomfortable truth home, and that is this, unbelief has consequences. Unbelief has consequences. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh, so he's keeping in line with the Jonah story here, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah was here. So Jesus is saying, history is not going to look kindly on your excuses. On the last day of judgment, where God sets everything to rights, where he exposes the world for the truth that it really is, you're not going to come out in a good place, Pharisees. And in fact, people that you would think are beneath you, people that you would think aren't spiritual enough to be in your presence, they're going to be looking down at you with disapproval on this final day. And he gives two examples as testimony against them. He says, so on the day of judgment, when God judges the earth, you're going to be on the wrong side of the equation, and these two groups of people are going to be on the right side of the equation, and it's going to burn you up. The first is the people of Nineveh. So as we said, the people of Nineveh, Jonah comes to them, he preaches, and if you think back to what we read in chapter 3, there wasn't even an explicit offer that forgiveness could come, right? Jonah just says, God's going to destroy you. And the people of Nineveh, they repent, they turn from their violence, and the king says, who knows, maybe God will show mercy. Like, there's not even a promise that he will, but just on the off chance that he will, they decide to change their entire lifestyle and repent big change on seemingly very little evidence, very little to go on. And so he says, the people of Nineveh, they are going to look on you in judgment on the last day because they had far less to go on than you did. And they exercised faith. They acted in faith. The second example comes in verse 42, where he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south, who is she? Well, she's also sometimes called the queen of Sheba, and you can find her story in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament in chapter 10. She is an African queen who had heard of the great wisdom and wealth of King Solomon of Israel. Solomon uh, had great wisdom more than any man who had lived. He had a a wealthy and powerful kingdom. And so this queen of of the south, uh, from modern-day Ethiopia, more than likely, she hears rumors and stories of this king and his great wisdom and the God who gave him his great wisdom. 
And so based on these rumors, she packs up and says, I got to go find out if it's true. And so she takes her entourage and she goes to Jerusalem to hear from Solomon and to find out if what she has heard is true. And, and it is, and she's confronted with that. And she begins to worship God and praise him for what he has done for Solomon. Jesus says, the queen of the south is going to be standing in the witness stand on the last day testifying against you. Because she had less to go on than you've got. She exercised faith and you're burying your head in the sand. Right? Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. And that was enough for them, but this isn't enough for you. And Jesus is getting across to them the fact that the Pharisees have put up all their guards, all of their protections to say, look, we're God's people, right? We've got the right race. We've got the right pedigree. We've got the right education. We've got the right spirituality. We are the cream of the crop. And Jesus says, not only are you getting everything wrong, but the people who are standing testifying against you on the day of judgment are going to be the people that you don't think are worth the time of day. Who does he talk about? He talks about Gentiles, right? Gentiles, the people of Nineveh, these you know, violent people who don't know God, who don't care about God, who yet repented at, at this terrible prophet who shows up at their door and says God's going to bring judgment. And they seek God because of that. And the other story, the other example is a Gentile woman. They look down on Gentiles. They look down on women. Jesus says this Gentile woman is exercising far more faith than you. And she's going to testify against you on the last day. These, these people, the people of Nineveh, the queen of the south, they got things right in the exact way that the Pharisees are getting them wrong. And they had far less evidence to go on, far less signs, if you will, than the Pharisees who are still sitting here asking for another one. I mean, understand what faith looks like when we look at these two groups of people. Let's take the people of Nineveh first. Like we said, they repent on very, very little. So they don't know God. This is not a people who would have been familiar with the God of Israel, with the Bible, with the Ten Commandments, with God's law, his expectations, his goodness, his grace, his kindness. They don't know anything of it. And here comes this prophet from some backwater part of the empire. And he says, God is going to bring destruction upon you. This nice, big, cosmopolitan city, right? Three days' breadth is what the text said. Think, you know, some guy from Podunk, Arkansas, makes his way up to New York City and says, hey, God's going to bring destruction on you. And instead of laughing him out of the building, they repent. They're confronted with a message of judgment and destruction by a lousy prophet who didn't even want to be there to begin with. And just like that, they repent. They turn to God. That's the picture, the first picture of faith that Jesus paints and says, this is what faith looks like. The second one, the queen of the south, so she hears just rumors about Solomon's wisdom and about the God who gave it to him. Just rumors. Like we hear rumors all the time. A lot of times the rumors that we hear don't really cause us to do much of anything, right? We might see something on social media and we can't even be bothered to like make a web search to find out if it's true or not before we decide to get up and all, all in arms about it. What does she do with the rumors that she hears? She hears rumors about this amazing king and his wisdom from a place that's not even in her orbit, has zero day-to-day -day impact on her life. And what does she do? She says, all right, we're going to go and see it. She packs up her entourage and she goes to Jerusalem to find out. This is not a, an afternoon trip, right? This is not a quick excursion from Jerusalem 
uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Jerusalem is a 1,588-mile journey. For comparison's sake, that's 10 miles longer than Louisville to Salt Lake City, Utah. And there's no cars, there's no planes. She's walking, or at least on horseback or camelback. Like, it ain't going to be a short trip. Imagine hearing rumors about something really amazing going on in Salt Lake City, Utah, and you're like, I got to check this out. I got to know if it's true. Come on, let's go. We're walking. Like, you're just committing months of your life to what you're about to go and find out. That's what she does. Jesus says she flips her life upside down on rumors, on the off chance that there's something there in Jerusalem with this King Solomon that's going to change her life. And you sit here and ask for a sign when you've seen 27,000 of them already. In both cases, we have people with no connection to the God of Israel or his history or his people and very, very little to go on in terms of compelling evidence. And both demonstrated remarkable, life-altering faith. They took big, bold steps. So what's Jesus' message in this to the Pharisees, to the religious crowd who's sniping at him at the sidelines, who's asking for a sign? He says, you guys have every positional advantage over them, right? You have every advantage that they don't have. You know me. You know the testimony of the scriptures. You know the kindness that I've showed to my people. You know the promises of the Old Testament about a Savior who is coming. You know all of this stuff. You have every positional advantage over them. You've got a ton more to go on in terms of a compelling sign. You've seen so much right in front of you with your very own eyes. And yet, on the day of judgment, you'll be condemned. And they will be there on the side of the righteous with God nodding in approval. Pastor and author Douglas Sean O'Donnell sums it up this way. He says, While pagans understood the truth when it reached their ears, the teachers of the Torah refused to come, refused to repent, refused to stop their mouths, quiet their questions, step back and look and listen and admit, truly this must be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Guilty, guilty, guilty. It's a sobering text, and it should bring, I'm going to suggest, two realities to bear on our lives as we think about this, and we think about what kind of implications does this have for me 2,000 years later as I look back and I see this testimony about Jesus and try to decide, what do I do with this guy? What do I do with his claims? Well, the first reality that it needs to bring to bear on us is that unbelief and rejection of Jesus has consequences. Right? It, it matters. The decision that we make when we're confronted with Jesus matters and it's going to matter forever rejecting jesus isn't simply a matter of two philosophies agreeing to disagree but jesus says there's going to be a final judgment where we will each have to own our faith or our rejection of him one way or the other it's a big deal that that's a, that's what i want us to take away from this this is a big deal now here at trinity we talked a lot about this morning about skepticism here at trinity we want to be a place and a people that welcome skeptics right? We want this to be a safe place for skeptics to come in and ask your questions, right? We want you to be able to come in to, to air your doubts honestly, to ask your questions about the Bible, <coughs> about God, about the church, and don't have to put on a happy face that you've got it all figured out. We want to be a safe place for skeptics. And we want, if you're, if you're here this morning, you say, I don't know that I believe all this Jesus stuff yet. We are really glad you're here. 
And we want you to understand this is a place where you can find real answers. And people are going to take your questions seriously, free of ridicule, free of smug dismissiveness. That's our aim as a church, right? And if you've been around us for any length of time, I hope that's what you pick up when you come here. I hope that's the sense that you get. But I also hope this. I hope you don't mistake that openness to questions and doubts as somehow signifying that we think the answers don't matter. That we think where you land on these things isn't ultimately important. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Right? How we ultimately respond to Jesus isn't a matter of preference or philosophy. Like, you know, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite dessert? What's your favorite football team? We don't have to agree on that. It's subjective questions that we can toss around and has very little day-to-day implication. Jesus isn't like that. How you respond to Jesus is a matter that will separate people when God judges the universe. Wrap your head around that. Sit sit under the weight of that for just a second. Because especially in our culture today, we hear that and we think, that sounds kind of like, wow, that's harsh. That's serious. It is. How can that be? How can the way we respond to Jesus Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago, be the dividing line of history when God judges the world? (coughs) The answer is that we have all placed ourselves in the camp opposite God. We've all rejected him. We've all made decisions that say, God, you've got your way, but I'm going to do things my way. And we've all placed ourselves positionally on the other side of that final dividing line. Jesus is the appointed means God has given to bring us back, to say, I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to overlook your rebellion, your sin, all of those things that you've done, and I'm going to call you into my family. And so if we reject the very one that God has sent to bring us back, that's a serious rejection. And it's something that will matter, and it will matter forever. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're listening online as a skeptic because you find religion and spirituality fascinating things to talk about. That's great. So do we. You're going to find a lot of people here who will be thrilled to hear your questions and take them seriously and have those conversations and banter back and forth. But I want to warn you this morning, do you realize the gravity of what you're playing with? Are you content to fiddle with whims, with cool ideas, or are you ready to actually submit yourself to something life-altering when you're confronted with it? When you're able to settle the questions, when you're able to see who Jesus is, what he came to do, are you ready at some point to say, I've I've seen enough. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to change my life's trajectory to follow Jesus Christ. And, And that is the point at which your skepticism is going to serve you well. If you're willing to drop it at that point and say, I'm with Jesus. And wherever he goes, that's where I go. We live in a culture that really is about open-mindedness. And there's a degree to which that is really, really good. But it's, there's this helpful quote from G.K. Chesterton, who was an author and philosopher, and, and he had this to say about being open-minded. He said, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind is the same as of opening the mouth to shut it again on something solid. Perpetual open-mindedness is not a virtue if you never actually close on something, if you just walk around with your mouth open all day long, that doesn't help anybody out. You might be thinking, well, you're a preacher, so maybe you should take that to heart there, buddy. Uh, But if I don't actually close my mouth on something, then what good am I doing? 
Jesus or Chesterton says that the mind is the same way. Open-mindedness is great, but you have to be willing to close at some point. When you encounter Jesus, when you see him, when you understand his life, his death, his resurrection, are you willing to close, to stop the questions and to say, I'll follow where you lead. The second truth that comes out of this for us is that God is not concerned with our religious resume. He's concerned with faith. He's, he's calling us to faith. The Pharisees thought they were in because of their pedigree. They're Jews. We have the right ethnicity. We have the right education. We have the right standing in society. We have the right spirituality. And because of all those things, we're on God's side. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. People from other ethnicities, with none of your knowledge, no goodness but a willingness to repent, they're going to stand in judgment over you on the last day. Your resume is worthless. God doesn't care. He doesn't care. God's calling people to faith, to stop worshiping self and my standards and my expectations and start worshiping him. Faith is what Jesus is ultimately calling us to. Now, to the skeptic, I would say he's not calling us to the blind, mindless faith that so often we think, well, that's what faith people are. Just check the evidence at the door, check your brain, and just grasp onto something with no rationale. That's not it. Jesus isn't calling you to a blind, irrational faith, but he is calling us to faith. There will come a point where we evaluate the evidence, we evaluate the signs, we evaluate who he is, and we have to come to a point where we're willing to take a leap like the people of Nineveh and say, you know what, who knows, maybe God will show mercy, I'm going to repent. Where we're like the Queen of Sheba, we say, you know what, i got to go and take the next three months of my life to figure this out. We have to come to a point where we exercise faith. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so Jesus is calling these Pharisees, these religious paragons, to humble themselves and place their faith in him. So what for us? What do we do with this? There's a couple different ways to evaluate and to respond. Maybe you're here this morning as a skeptic. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, I'm, I'm interested in Jesus, but I don't know that I believe this stuff yet. I don't know that I believe that he really was raised from the dead. I don't know that I believe that he's really God. I'm still trying to figure it out you're in a great place, and we're really glad that you're here. And if you've got questions after the service, come see me, come see Pastor Dave, Pastor Todd, the friend who brought you, and let's have a conversation about those things. Let's grab coffee one day this week, and you are welcome to continue to show up here Sunday after Sunday to figure things out. We would love to have you here. But are you ready to close on something? Are you just fiddling with ideas, or are you really evaluating something that could alter your life's trajectory? that could change everything about you? Are you willing to submit yourself to that when you find it? Or will you be like these Pharisees that no matter what sign God gives, you say, yeah, but one more. I, I need one more. Just, just one more. If it's this kind of skepticism that is willing to submit in faith, it's going to do you really well. If it's the kind of skepticism that these guys have, then you're going to be like Scully in season five of the X-Files and someone's going to have to drive you, drag you out of the building right before the space satellite nukes it. And you're going to be looking stupid to everybody who's watching on TV. Skepticism is healthy to a point, but are you willing to get off the train when that point arrives? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you say, hey, I'm, I'm believing in Jesus, I'm trusting him, Maybe I'm on day three of that journey. Maybe I'm on day 3,000 of that journey, but, but I'm trusting. I'm moving forward in faith. What, what do I do with this? How do I apply this text? 
What, how are you living day by day, right? Faith in Christ isn't just the entry point at which we get onto this journey, but it's every single step of the journey after that. You're going to hit stuff in your life today, tomorrow, next week, and some of it is going gonna, is gonna to tempt you to get off the train and to think, you know what, I can't trust Jesus in this. Are you willing to exercise the same kind of faith that brought you to Christ as you continue to follow him? Or do you continue down the road to say, Jesus, I'm going to need a sign if I'm going to trust you in this. I know you've done A, B, C, D, and E so far in my life, but if I'm going to follow you in F, you got to put something up because I don't know that I can trust you. How do you operate? What kind of faith do you show in the day-to-day decisions that life comes? Do you, have you surrounded yourself with people who can help encourage you and help you talk through those decisions? Christians, this ain't a solo journey, Right? If you're trying to go from Addis Ababa to Jerusalem, you're going to trip sometime on those 1,500 miles. You need somebody there to walk alongside you, to help you up. Are you surrounding yourself with those kind of people who can speak into your life and help you to trust when things get hard? Have you grappled with the gravity of Jesus' claims? Are you confident enough in your belief or in your unbelief to own it? Because you will. This Jesus, who we continue to watch clash with these Pharisees, is calling us to a simple faith that says, I believe you are who you say you are. You can do what you say you're going to do. And I'm going to follow you wherever that goes. I would encourage you and plead with you this morning, whether you've already made the initial step of that journey or whether you're walking it and just trying to keep on going, have faith. He's good. And he has given us the sign of the prophet Jonah. He was dead, he was in the ground, and then he emerged from the grave, and he proclaims repentance and faith and hope and life to us as a result of it. Trust in that sign and follow that Jesus. Let's pray.